fellow workers and comrades. The socialist movement is as wide as the world, and its mission is to win the world, the whole world, from animalism and consecrated to humanity. That was the voice of Eugene Debs, a railway union organizer from Terre Haute, Indiana, who in the first two decades of the 20th century was the Socialist Party candidate in five presidential elections. Crisscrossing the country in a campaign train he called the Red Special, Debs denounced capitalism for exploiting American workers, despoiling the environment, and creating massive inequality. And after America's entry into World War I, Debs forcefully criticized the administration of Woodrow Wilson, and indeed the entire war effort, making him a target during one of the most ferocious periods of repression in American history. Trade unionists, African Americans, and radicals of all stripes were harassed, spied on, and prosecuted, while Debs himself was indicted and convicted under a new law called the Espionage Act, making him, as of now, the last presidential candidate to be criminally prosecuted by the Justice Department. The Debs case, along with the persecution of radicals and dissenters, is the subject of journalist Adam Hochschild's new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. We'll talk to Hochschild about the lessons that era has for today on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So we haven't done a buried treasure for some time, but I have to say, uh, digging into uh, Adam Hochschild's great book, American Midnight, uh, the possibilities just like leapt out at me. And the obvious one is the story of Eugene Debs. Uh, We've all been talking all year about how if Merrick Garland ultimately greenlights a prosecution of Donald Trump, it would be unprecedented the first time a former president was criminally charged by the Justice Department. That's true, but it wouldn't be the first presidential candidate to be prosecuted by the Justice Department. That distinction belongs to Eugene Debs, who was a very active Socialist Party candidate, had a wide following, got a never anything close to a majority, but a pretty hefty at one point, I think 6% of all the votes in the 1912 presidential election. And he was indicted, convicted and imprisoned for violating the Espionage Act because he had criticized Woodrow Wilson. Obviously, the circumstances are very different uh, with Donald Trump. The conduct is different, although the law, the Espionage Act is still on the table and still may be used for a prosecution of Trump. So it's really worth digging into sort of the origins of the Espionage Act and criminal prosecutions of presidential candidates like Eugene Debs. Yeah. And I I will also point out that Debs is actually enjoying a little bit of a revival. Uh, He's not really a household name these days, but, you know, everything from Bernie Sanders, the socialist candidate who ran for president as a as a Democrat and did pretty well, almost almost beating Hillary Clinton in the in the 2016 primary, to Isakoff, you'll remember uh, the guys and I guess one woman from uh, Chapo Trap House, uh, the, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the podcast that had on us uh, one of that our we had on to, episodes, great, to right? great infamy. Yeah. Those guys are big. They they refer to themselves as the dirtbag left, and they are big fans of Eugene Debs. In fact, one of them I saw when I was uh, on YouTube actually does one of uh, Eugene Debs's speeches. I think I think at his uh, sentencing, and even my seventeen year old daughter and her friend who refer to themselves not as uh, the dirtbag left, but as leftists, know who Eugene Debs is, was, and are fans of his. So, um, you know, I think we're we're surfing a surfing a bit of a trend here on, on We're uh, going to spur a Eugene Debs revival uh, <laughs> yeah. here on Skullduggery. But I think it's important to, to note that this book is not 
just about Eugene Debs. It's not even predominantly about Eugene Debs. It's really about a, a moment in American democracy that so many of us have forgotten when so many of the things that we take for granted today about the way our American democracy works were not accepted when they were under stress and under attack. This is the era of, of J. Edgar Hoover, and it's also uh, an era of of some of the, the greatest figures sort of in American history, in American journalism. It's the era of Walter Lippmann, of H.L. Mencken, of some of the greatest writers about American democracy. But you know, what? what's really astounding when you read Hochschild's book is the speech that Debs and others were engaged in and prosecuted for seems incredibly tame by today's standards. I mean, Debs never directly told people not to register for the draft, although he criticized the war effort and the kinds of uh, anti-war comments he made were kinds of things you could have heard in the 60s and 70s about the Vietnam War, the kinds of things you could have heard more recently about the Iraq War. Danny, you mentioned uh, the Trapo, uh, the Chapo Trap House guys doing a, a reading of Debs's speech to the jury when he was prosecuted. Some of it's reprinted in Hochschild's book, and it's you know rather standard and sometimes moving anti-war rhetoric. Men are fit for something better than slavery and cannon fodder. Debs said, "I can hear the shrieks of the soldiers of Europe in my dreams. I have imagination enough to see a battlefield. I can see it strewn with the legs of human beings who, but yesterday, were in the." flesh were in the flush and glory of their young manhood i can see them at event tide scattered about in remnants their limbs torn from their bodies somewhat moving anti-war rhetoric but hardly the kind of thing one would think could get you thrown in well, jail in the united the, states of it America. was the socialism it wasn't just the anti-war activism it was also the socialism because well that, remember, that was the underlying yeah, cause yeah, but it, it, the pretext was the pretext the was but, but the but comments. the right to right the right to strike the right to unionize the search for a 40-hour work week the anti-child labor laws the uh, worker safety issues those were the kind of the radical issues that eugene Debs was pursuing that started off getting everyone to go after him. And then he then he kind of maybe handed them the additional issue of being anti-war. Yes. But to get back to Mike's original point, the parallels with what's going on with Donald Trump, if the Justice Department were to charge him with seditious conspiracy, and, and we don't know whether that will happen, you can be sure that he's going to make a First Amendment argument that the speech he made, he may not invoke Eugene Debs, but he is going to, he and his lawyers will argue that that was protected speech. It was not a, um, a catalyst for insurrection. His he will First invoke, Amendment right to, yeah. He, he will invoke Warren Harding, who commuted Eugene Debs' <laughs> yeah. sentence. And yeah. we're going to discuss that in this um, a great conversation uh, we've got coming up with Adam Hochschild. So let's get to it. We now have with us Adam Hochschild. He is the author of multiple highly praised books that have won many awards and also of the new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Adam, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, thank you, Mike. It's good to be with you all. So much to talk about in your book, but I want to start out with a character that I suspect not a lot of people know much about, but is absolutely fascinating, and that is Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party candidate for president, I think in multiple presidential elections between 1900 and uh, 1920, actually got more votes in 1912 than the Republican candidate, President William Howard Taft in some states. And he was criminally prosecuted by the Woodrow Wilson Justice Department for violating the Espionage Act. And that just leapt out at me. We've all been talking about the prospective <laughs> potential right. prosecution of Donald Trump, a presidential candidate. Here was um, 
a very different presidential candidate who was being prosecuted. Tell us who Eugene Debs was and why the Justice Department in 1918 was prosecuting him. Well, it's a remarkable story because you'll all remember in 2016, Donald Trump's followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Well, in 1918, Woodrow Wilson did lock up a former opponent of his in a presidential race. Debs was the perennial Socialist Party candidate for president. He won 6% of the popular vote in the 1912 election. He was a very gentle, much beloved man, uh, respected even by many non-socialists. He was deeply committed to nonviolence and to the electoral process. And in fact, he had stood aside and not run for president in 1916 because he believed Woodrow Wilson's promises, which turned out to be false, that he would not take the United States into the First World War. Debs was appalled by the U.S. entering the war, as were many Americans who felt that this was the most destructive conflict the world had ever seen. It would lead to nothing good and that the U.S. should stay out of it. Debs said some of these things in a speech in 1918, in a, at a, speaking from a bandstand at a park in Canton, Ohio. He was a very eloquent speaker. And he was immediately arrested put on trial for violating the Espionage Act, brought before a judge who just happened to be the former law partner of Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of War, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison and gave a very eloquent speech in his defense at the trial where he spoke about imagining the mangled bodies of young men on the battlefield and asked again, what is this all for? He was shipped off to prison and he was still in jail. This is the remarkable thing about the how repressive this period was. He, like many war critics, was still in jail November 1920, more than two years after the First World War had ended. And as a convict in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, he received more than 900,000 votes for president. That is remarkable. Uh, something else that's remarkable is... What he actually said in the speech that became the basis for the Justice Department prosecution, you read today and it seems like sort of normal political speech that one would hear during any uh, national controversy. The operative words that uh, the Justice Department focused on was this is Deb speaking. They have always taught you that it is your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, never had a voice in declaring war. That does not immediately strike one as so far outside the bounds of political speech that it could be used to criminally prosecute somebody. Not at all. And that was true as well of the many, many other people who were prosecuted under the Espionage Act during this period I wrote about in American Midnight. Between 1917 and 1921, roughly a thousand Americans were sent to prison for a year or more, one of them was Debs, and a much larger number for shorter periods of time, solely for things that they wrote or said. And in almost all cases, it was statements like the one that you just read from Debs, where, you know, they were not telling people to burn down buildings or anything like that, but just speaking out against this immense, horrible war that they thought the U.S. had no business joining. So, Adam, I wanted to tease out the uh, Trump parallel a little bit because you talked about Wilson going after his political opponent. And, and when we think about Trump, we think about it, you know, it largely being driven by you know, a, a political vendetta. In the period that you write about, there was something going on in the country. There was a kind of paranoia that had taken hold. Uh, you, know, you had the Bolshevik re revolution in Russia. There was fear of revolution spreading in this country. There was some violence, anarchists, so on and so forth. So it was more that than Wilson going after, just going after a political opponent, right? Or was he taking advantage of that moment? I think he was taking advantage of a lot of paranoia in the, in the air. It was a very tense time 
in the United States. You have to look at it this way. We, the myth that we're taught in our high school history books is that this terrible war began in Europe in, the, in 1914. Meanwhile, the United States was this peaceful nation that stood aside until those nasty German submarines started sinking American ships, and then we had no choice but to join the war. But the US was not a peaceful nation. There were several enormous conflicts going on. One was between business and labor, which was very violent in those days. Dozens of people were killed every year. More than 70 people killed in one strike alone, 1913-1914, miners in Colorado, uh, killed by local police and National Guardsmen. Another battle was the one that's still going on today, Black Americans struggling for their rights. A great deal of racial violence in this period. And uh, uh, there was also a tremendous amount of tension between nativists and immigrants, as there still is today. But it took a different form back then, because the immigrants that people were upset about were not those coming from Latin America. There were very few at that time, but rather coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, in other words, Jews, Poles, Italians, who hadn't in the eyes of Anglo-Saxon Americans quite yet become white, so to speak. So then the U.S. enters the First World War, and then a few months after that, the Russian Revolution happens. And those two events, it was just like pouring gasoline on three sets of flames, because it further exacerbated all of those conflicts. And Wilson, who was a very paradoxical, complicated man, a great progressive and idealist in some ways, but a great authoritarian in others, he took advantage of the hysteria in the air to push through very tough laws like the Espionage Act, which allowed him to criminalize dissent against the war. And it was not just dissent against the war that he wanted to go after. For example, he made a particular practice of targeting militant labor leaders, uh, such as the members of the, the Industrial Workers of the World, the country's most militant union, the Wobblies, as they were known. Hundreds of their leaders were rounded up, put on trial in several mass trials. One of them, over 100 people in Chicago, lasted four months. The judge passed out from that trial alone, 807 years of prison time. It crushed the organization. He was also eager to crush the Socialist Party because the Socialists had made big gains in municipal elections in the fall of 1917, got more than 20% of the vote in 14 of the country's larger cities, uh, more than 30% in several. And Wilson was terrified that if even a few socialists got elected to the House of Representatives, it was a situation rather like today, where his Democratic Party held the House, but only by a very tiny margin. And the last thing he wanted was for an anti-war party to get the balance of power. So that's when he started arresting socialists, not just Debs, but many others as well. So I think it's it's fair to say that by your estimation, this is probably this this period of time in American history was possibly one of the greatest crises in American democracy and one of the greatest challenges that the American democracy has faced. Yet, as you also write, it's largely forgotten. We mostly remember the Doughboys, and then it's the Roaring Twenties and Flappers. Why do you think this is the kind of forgotten chapter in American democracy? Well, I think all countries mythologize their history. We're not alone in that. I've, I've seen the same thing when I was writing about Belgium and King Leopold's ghost and Britain and how it looked on the history of British slavery, same thing. And I think the United States likes to tell its story, particularly in places like museums, high school history books, national parks, and so on. There's always a strong pressure to tell an upbeat story. We'd all like to believe that the country we come from was founded on noble principles and that, yes, there were some bad things like slavery, but that got solved. And it's sort of onward and been more or less onward and upward. And the founding fathers had this, these brilliant ideas at the beginning, and then the greatest generation won World War II. But of course, it wasn't that way. And this period in particular has been forgotten, I think, because it was a shameful one. You do see signs of it being remembered in the New Deal 
years. When there were a lot of new dealers, this was some 20 years later in Franklin Roosevelt's administration, who were very wary about giving a lot of power to the FBI, for instance, because they, they remembered what its predecessor had done 20 years earlier. But, you know, we have short memories, Americans, and I think we've largely forgotten this stuff, even though it was only 100 years ago. I will say, before when I found out we were doing this podcast, I asked my 17-year-old daughter if she knew who Eugene Debs was, and, and her eyes lit up. She said, I do, and all my friends do. He ran for president as a socialist five times, and she was very excited. Of course, they all refer to themselves as leftists, which is uh -huh. which is interesting. So there's an ideological kinship among some of the young people. But I wanted to ask you, Deb spent, in the end, two years in prison, correct? About two and a half. Two and a half years in prison. Yeah. And his sentence was commuted by Warren Harding. Why did Harding do that? Okay. Actually, his, his sentence was commuted, but he wasn't pardoned. And there's an interesting distinction right. between the two. You commute somebody's sentence, they get out of prison. When you pardon them, they regain their full citizenship rights, such as the right to vote. And after this happened, a reporter asked Debs how he felt not having his full citizenship back. And he said, well, now I'm just a citizen of the world, which I think is what we should all feel. Harding did this because this period that, that I describe in American Midnight, the Red Scare, came to an end uh, in by early 1921 when Harding took over from Wilson. Harding ran on the slogan, back to normalcy. People sometimes give him credit for inventing the word, but in fact, it did. It, it, uh, Sounds exist. a bit like Joe Biden, who yeah. was facing some of the same challenges. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And Harding actually acknowledged off the record uh, in 1921, he said, Debs was right about that war. We never should have gotten involved in it. Also, Harding himself, to give him some credit, you know, he's not remembered as one of our greatest presidents. He wasn't. But <laughs> when I was in school, well before Donald Trump became president, he was usually ranked at the very bottom of U.S. presidents. Uh, well, I and, and, and never a hint that he had some sort of secret uh, civil libertarian streak in him that caused him to commute the sentence of Eugene Debs. But please go well, ahead. <laughs> that may be putting it a little too strongly, Mark, but he, <laughs> okay. because he was under pressure. There were people demonstrating outside the White House, you know, the, the, the wives and children of political prisoners holding up signs saying, you know, let our men go. And, you know, I haven't seen my daddy for three years and things like that. But I think he also, on this score, he didn't share the hysteria of a lot of other people. Harding actually, before he became president, had been a newspaper publisher and he didn't like censorship. That was another thing that had happened in the Wilson administration, extreme censorship of dissenting media. They essentially shut down some 75 newspapers and magazines, something Donald Trump would have loved to be able to do with media that dissented against him. Ironically, the government's whole censorship operation, which was run by the post office, was run out of post office headquarters, the building that 100 years later became the Trump International Hotel. <laughs> Had not drawn that connection um, until just now. And one more uh, beat on Debs, because I do want to talk about all everything you're raising, uh, including especially the censorship stuff and another character, uh, Albert Burleson, who uh, leaps out in your pages. But just as a, a sense of the f to give people a, a flavor of just how aggressive the repression was, Debs becomes the target of what you describe as a, essentially a, a disinformation campaign that may have been done by U.S. military intelligence, a dirty tricks operation to suggest to the public that he actually was supporting the war when he wasn't. And stories come out uh, in major newspapers, the socialists led by Debs come out for war, Debs to reform, uh, under his leadership, socialists will change attitude. What was the purpose of this disinformation campaign to sort of basically distort the views of Eugene Debs about the war. 
Well, this is a tool that repressive governments or governments trying to be repressive have often used. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI did some of these things in later years. And I think that the government was probably seeing if they could get people to not take Deb's anti-war statement seriously by implying that he no longer believed them. Nobody's ever been able to trace ex exactly who planted these stories in newspapers, but there's a curious little burst of headlines about Jeb Debs has changed his mind about the war, which was not at all true. And then when that didn't work, then they arrested him. Truly interesting. So let's get back to this guy I just mentioned, Albert Burleson, because he's not a name I suspect most of our listeners will have heard of. He was the postmaster general, but he was the guy who basically was censoring newspapers all over the country, refusing to deliver them, which was you know one way of cutting them off entirely. And uh, you quote somebody who said, you know, he may have been the worst human being ever to be postmaster general. Tell us about who he was and just how extensive this censorship operation was. It was enormous. The Espionage Act gave to the postmaster general the power to declare anything unmailable. Now, this didn't affect publications like mainstream daily newspapers, which were sold on street corners and delivered to people's homes, but they almost entirely supported the war. But for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, almost the entire socialist press, almost the entire foreign language press, they depended on the mail. There was no internet, no radio, TV. You know, if a publication wanted to reach its subscribers, especially if they were scattered all over the country, they had to use the mail. Well, Burleson, as postmaster general, had the power to prevent any publication from going through the mail. And he loved being the country's chief censor. He, in effect, shut down some 75 newspapers and magazines by declaring uh, their issues unmailable. And he, you know, when something riled him up, he would shut it down. Can't mail that. For example, there was a magazine in New York called The Masses, which was uh, left-leaning but not doctrinaire. It published a wonderful array of writers, uh, John Reed, Walter Lippmann, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Sherwood Anderson, widely seen as sort of the best magazine of the day, very much sort of a precursor of The New Yorker, a mixture of fiction, reportage, cartoons. And they pioneered that style of cartoon that The New Yorker now uses, where you have one line of dialogue as the caption. Anyway, the masses was very much opposed to the war. They published John Reed's reports from the front in Europe. One of the things that uh, Postmaster General Burleson objected to was a masses cartoon that showed the Liberty Bell crumbling. And the issue that carried that cartoon was the last that uh, the magazine ever published because it couldn't go through the mail after that. Uh, in addition, the editors were put on trial under the Espionage Act. So, and he did all sorts of other things. Some of it, it was personal vendettas. For example, there was a small weekly in Texas that had exposed, Burleson incidentally was a, a former congressman from Texas, very conservative, the son and grandson of Confederate veterans. His family had owned 20 slaves at the time that he was born. He was furious at a small weekly in Texas, which had exposed how on some land that he owned, He'd leased it to the Texas prison system to be worked by convict laborers in striped uniforms who were whipped severely if they didn't work hard enough. Well, he shut that paper down. Actually, that was the first, the first publication, I believe, that he shut down. And he kept on, even though the Espionage Act had been passed, you know, because the U.S. was entering the war, he busily kept on censoring things right up until the last day of the Wilson administration, which was two and a half years after the war ended. And in all of this, Burleson, as well as in all of the Espionage Act prosecutions, they were aided, abetted by the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard a number of cases that were challenging these activities and agreed with these prosecutions, with one possible 
hint of uh, light at the end of the tunnel during that time. Can you tell us about the role of the law and the court during this period? Yeah. The Supreme Court, there was a case that came before the Supreme Court in early 1919, the Schenck case, which involved a couple of socialists in Philadelphia who had distributed leaflets criticizing the draft, mandatory conscription. And they were prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Their lawyers were very hopeful that they would be found innocent, that they, this case would challenge the act itself. And they had a lot of faith, particularly in Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was known to be a friend of civil liberties. They were appalled when the court issued a unanimous opinion upholding the conviction and therefore the act. And it was actually written by Holmes. And it was in that opinion that the famous line occurs, which I'm sure you heard, which is that, you know, free speech is free speech, but it doesn't allow somebody to shout fire in a crowded theater, which is a ridiculous analogy because opposing a war that's killing millions of people and opposing, you know, mandatory draft for young men to fight in that war is not the same thing as causing a panic in a crowded theater. Well, then uh, later that year, the end of 1919, another case came before the court, the Abrams case, also involving the distribution of a leaflet that had actually been tossed out, copies of it had been tossed out the window of a factory in New York City where one of the authors of the leaflet uh, worked. Leaflet was in English and in Yiddish. And it was opposing U.S. military intervention in the Russian Civil War. World War I was over at this point. When this case came before the court, uh, <clears throat> Oliver Wendell Holmes did something very brave. He changed his mind. Uh, a lot of people had been working on him over the summer, trying to get him to change his mind, and they succeeded. He told his colleagues that he was going to dissent if they upheld the Espionage Act on this case. They were horrified, and in something almost unprecedented, three members of the Supreme Court came to see him at his home to try to talk him out of dissenting. They talked to him in his study. They said, you know, as an old soldier, Holmes had been wounded as a Union soldier in the Civil War. You have to stand behind your country at a difficult time. They pointed to his Civil War sword, which was hanging on the wall. And we know what they said because his law clerk was in the next room listening in through a half-open door. But Holmes wrote a very eloquent dissent against the upholding of the Espionage Act in this case, in which he was joined by Justice Louis Brandeis. Supreme Court dissents don't make, <clears throat> make law, of course, but this one is often quoted in defense of free speech, just talking about how you know democracy depends on a free marketplace of ideas. And of course, the 1917 Espionage Act remains on the books. It's been amended, but it remains controversial. The Justice Department during the Obama administration went after reporters who were leaked classified information using the uh, Espionage Act. Tell us about how central the Espionage Act has, has been uh, over the course of, of American history from when it was enacted and where things stand now. Do you, do you believe it, it should be, even in its current form, should be repealed? Uh, I know that there are people both on the right and the left who seem to agree about that. And Adam, before you answer, I just want to read a brief line from Deb's speech to the jury at his trial. I believe in free speech and war isn't well in peace. If the Espionage Act stands, then the Constitution of the United States is dead. Yeah. Well, I'm not a lawyer and I haven't kept track of all of the ways they've amended the Espionage Act. It certainly no longer gives to the post office the ability to declare a publication unmailable. And I'm glad for that. But it has been used to go after journalists, go after people like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange of, of WikiLeaks. And I do feel that uh, reporters should not be prosecuted ever over you know, revealing secrets that they obtain or are given to them. 
And I would love to see that part of the Espionage Act eliminated. It is, ironically, the act under which Donald Trump may get prosecuted for those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. I don't know. The case <laughs> of a former government official misusing classified documents, taking them somewhere, losing them, giving them away, whatever he did with them, gave them away as party favors, we don't know. That seems to me in a different category than uh, prosecuting journalists. So I think I might let that part, of, when I'm president, I'll let that part <laughs> stand. Two other characters that leap off the pages of American Midnight. One well-known to our listeners. The other, a guy I never heard of, but who's kind of the hero of your story. Uh, the first one I'm referring to, of course, is J. Edgar Hoover, who gets his start during this era and uh, compiling dossiers on radical for what became the Palmer raids. And the other guy who I had never heard of who tries to stop it is Lewis Post. Tell us about Hoover and Post and the sort of standoff that they had. Well, it's a wonderful story because it's got a villain and it's got a hero. And all stories should be so morally clear, which they often aren't. The Palmer raids as they're called, really should be called the Hoover Raids because J. Edgar Hoover, who was then 24 years old, just beginning his career in the Justice Department, planned them. And basically, these raids were to serve the presidential campaign of A. Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general, who had his eye on the Democratic nomination for president in 1920. And indeed, up to the last minute, he was the front runner candidate for that. Uh, in this period of hysteria against all things foreign, he thought there was much to be gained politically by being responsible for deporting large numbers of undesirable foreigners from the United States. So they launched these raids late 1920, late 1919, early 1920, seized roughly 10,000 people in cities throughout the Northeast and Midwest almost all men. Many of them were let go after they were interrogated and sometimes roughed up and found not to be deportable. But several thousand of them were kept in prison because they were found to be not American citizens. This was a time, remember, when there'd been massive immigration to the United States for the preceding uh, decades, You know, often more than a million people a year. A lot of people had never bothered to get American citizenship. It didn't seem to be necessary. Some of them had trouble with the English language. The, company, the country seemed to be welcoming immigrants. So Palmer wanted to deport all these people. But there was a, a wrinkle, which is this. Even though his Justice Department had the power to arrest these folks and keep them in prisons under quite harsh conditions, incidentally, deportations had to be approved by the Immigration Bureau, which fell under the Labor Department. The Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The second in command of the Labor Department, who was incidentally a big buddy of Hoover's, a fraternity brother of his, whom Hoover had been counting on for help, suddenly resigned in order to run for Congress. And so the third ranking person in the Labor Department became acting Secretary of Labor. That man, Louis F. Post, was had been a progressive journalist before entering the Wilson administration. He was not a radical. He was not a socialist or anarchist. But he believed very strongly that nobody should be deported from the United States because of his or her political opinions. And he was also a very experienced lawyer and an extremely skillful bureaucrat. And he managed to invalidate the arrest warrants with which Hoover had arrested most of these people and was able to get several thousand of them out of prison. Hoover was furious about this. He tried to get his friends in Congress, of which he already had many and would have more as the years went on, to impeach Post. They held an impeachment hearing in the House of Representatives, which Post mass were Post masterfully defended himself and ended up with the members of the committee just wrapped around his finger. 
Hoover tried to get the American Legion to demand Post's firing. They did, but uh, the administration didn't fire him. Post held on to the very end. So it's actually the first major political battle that J. Edgar Hoover lost. He would go on to win many more. In the book, I sort of detail other things that Post did to sort of reinforce his position, arranging for a court case that excoriated Hoover for how he'd done these these raids, arranging for a group of distinguished lawyers to issue a report condemning the Justice Department. So for me, he's one of the great heroes of of this period. A forgotten hero, but certainly deserving. I wanted to just uh, come back to to Debs uh, for a second and socialism in America because he ran five times. Um, it looks like his kind of high water mark, at least in terms of the percentage of the vote, was in 1912 when he received uh, six percent of the vote. Socialism has never really gotten traction in this country in in a substantial way. And yet in Europe, you know, you had Leon Blum and in Spain and Portugal in the 80s and 90s, you had socialist prime ministers. Why do you think that is? And maybe you would dispute that. I mean, Bernie Sanders has showed that a socialist can get a lot of support in this country, but he could not win win the nomination. And um, Eugene Debs was one of his heroes, by the way, is yes, one of yes, Bernie Sanders' yes. heroes. Yes. Talk about that if you could. Yeah. Well, socialism never had quite the mass appeal, despite Debs and despite Bernie Sanders, who did get 10 million votes in the primaries, despite them, it never had quite the mass appeal it had in Europe. And I think that's largely because most Americans, so many of them from immigrant backgrounds, don't tend to think in terms of class struggle as much in terms of the aspiration to get rich or the aspiration to do better than your parents' generation did and so on. So it was never a huge force here. But, you know, it was a considerable force during this period. Not only did Debs get uh, 6% of the popular vote for president, but more than a thousand socialists were elected to state and municipal offices around the country. At one point, there were there were 10 socialist legislators in the New York State Assembly. There were mayors of socialist mayors of cities as disparate as Pasadena, Milwaukee, Schenectady. I think if the party hadn't been so ruthlessly crushed in this period, it might have had more influence in later years. Not that it ever would have been anywhere near a majority party in the United States, but its existence might have pushed the major parties towards developing the kind of better social safety net and comprehensive national health care system that was pushed for successfully by socialist parties in Western Europe, by the Labour Party in England, for example. And all of Western Europe has you know, comprehensive national health care system. So does Canada. And actually, the Canadian version of the Socialist Party, the the New Democratic Party, has held power in several provinces in recent decades. One of the other things that you point out in your book is that that this is the period where we we possibly see the origins of mis- or disinformation campaigns as we would possibly know them today. And many of them were incredibly effective. One of the other kind of characters in your book was a victim of a a pretty significant mis- or disinformation campaign, and that was a sitting senator, Robert La Follette. I'm wondering if you can tell us about those campaigns and how they were, and obviously Post was also to a certain degree a target of them. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how they were used, and I'm particularly interested in how they were used against a sitting United States senator. Well, Robert La Follette was a wonderful guy, another of my heroes from this period. He was a Republican senator from Wisconsin. Keep in mind in this period that the Republican and Democratic parties were different than they are today. There were sort of progressive, very progressive and very conservative factions in each party. And La Follette was a staunch backer of the rights of women, the rights of people of color, rights of labor all his life. Uh, He was appalled by American entry into the First World War. He continued to criticize it. When Wilson said this is a war to make the world safe for democracy, La Follette said, well, why then aren't we demanding self-rule for 
Egypt, for Ireland, for India, all of these places, of course, were colonies of our ally, Great Britain. La Follette began receiving nooses in the mail. He was expelled from a club he belonged to in Madison, Wisconsin's capital. His fellow senators opened an investigation over whether he should be expelled from the Senate. Old friends disowned him, and he had a, he had a really terrible time. He did recover from it all, and he was reelected to the Senate after the hysteria had died down uh, several years later. But he was not the only person to feel those kinds of pressures as, you know, being damned as being unpatriotic. Now, you know, we've seen other versions of the same thing in recent times. Uh, critics of the Vietnam War, I was very much involved in the movement against the war in Vietnam. We were told that we, we were not being patriots, backing, not backing our country in its hour of need. You always have to ask what that hour of need really is, because, of course, Vietnam didn't attack the United States. And Germany didn't attack the United States in 1917. There was nothing like the attack on Pearl Harbor or the September 11th bombings in New York. In fact, Germany was for a long time quite eager not to bring the United States into the war in any way. Uh, the German submarines sinking American ships in early 1917 happened because these ships were carrying munitions, ammunition, guns, you know, airplane parts, stuff like that, to Britain and France. And Germany had warned any ship from any country sailing through that part of the ocean is liable to be sunk. Don't do it. So the U.S. had sort of voluntarily joined in the war. But then once a war has begun, there's always kind of an inherent pressure to feel it as an existential threat that somebody else has threatened our country. And therefore, you're not being a patriot if you don't defend it. But that was not the case here, just as it was not the case in Vietnam and on other occasions as well. So let me bring the discussion back to current affairs in light of the history you have laid out. Your subtitle is Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Uh, it's widely accepted we have a democracy crisis right now because of the uh, events of January 6th, the election denialism, um, uh, and all that. But I want to look at this from a little different perspective. We just had a prosecution by the Justice Department, mostly success, but not entirely successful, for seditious conspiracy against the leaders of the Oath Keepers. That's not a World War One era law. It's a Civil War, uh, Civil War era law, but it's it, it has the flavor of the kind of repression yeah. that you write about. We still have the Espionage Act with us. We don't have blatant government censorship such as Albert Burleson was engaged in. Today, we call it content moderation. Yeah. Um, and do you see uh, a sort of, you know, some of this makes me queasy, not because I don't believe that the people who did January 6th deserve vigorous, aggressive prosecution, or that wild, baseless conspiracy theories should not be widely shared. But there is a concern that you set a precedent when you use these kind of laws and these kind of practices that could bring back the kinds of things you write about in your book. Do you share my queasiness about some of what the government is doing now and progressives and liberals are calling for now that they could be setting precedents for a return for the kinds of things you're writing about in this book? I share some queasiness, yes. I think less about the prosecution of the, not, not, not about the prosecution of the Oath Keepers, because, you know, this was a violent attack, you know, breaking into the Capitol, people died, you know, they were violent against the, the, the police who were trying to guard it. That seems to me in a different category than the thing that makes me queasy, but which I don't have a solution to, which is, you know, we have to stop Elon Musk from allowing all these terrible things to be said on Twitter. We need to have censorship of powerful platforms like that. Now, I feel that impulse 
at the same time as I feel dismayed with myself for having it. Because once you start censorship, where does it stop? And who should have the power to do the censorship? I don't have an easy answer there. A lawyer friend with whom I was talking about this the other day, who says some of the same queasiness was saying, well, you have to make a distinction between putting ideas or statements of opinion out there and then having a media ecosystem as the social media platforms do that reinforce and accelerate, so to speak, whatever your opinion is, because they then feed you stuff, not that other people who disagree with you have said, but rather what people who sort of reinforced all the most extreme things that you feel. How you regulate that, I don't know. I do think we need to have a, a sort of a calm national conversation about it, but I don't have the full solution. Let me just push back a little on, you know, you're waving away the seditious conspiracy uh, prosecution, because it strikes me that in another administration that could be elected anytime, you could use that law to go after Antifa. You can use that law to go after the environmental radicals who protest during, you know, World Trade Organization events and, and often violence. I mean, we had, you know, after George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, most were peaceful, but there was violence. There was looting. There were riots in many cities. The Bill Barr Justice Department did not prosecute the Black Lives Matter protesters who engaged in that violence for seditious conspiracy, but it could have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is the concern, I would think, you know, that once you sort of go down this road, you can use that law in lots of different ways that you and I might not approve. I see, I see your point there. I think it's a good one. Maybe we should say, when either you or I become president, that we will prosecute people for actual acts of violence, but not for the thinking or the conspiring that led to those acts of violence. Would that do the trick, do you think? Less, violence should be prosecuted, yeah. no question. I yeah. mean, you know, that's sort of black letter law. You know, the use of the word sedition is what I'm mm. sort of yeah. focused on. Because look, I mean, you know, we've had political parties in this country that have openly called for the overthrow of the U.S. government, the Communist Party. That was their platform. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly Eugene Debs wanted to change the American system. You know, people could have called that sedition as well. I see Victoria kind of getting a little bit. Uh, no, 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 not, you know not at all. I'm interested all right. in, 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 pres case, in President Isikoff's administration. This is not a discussion <laughs> that you hear very often, but it's, um, I think, especially after reading your book, it's it's one that I think is worth worth having. Yeah, I see your point. I think it's it's a good point. Well, if I get a good point out of this, I will uh, I will take it as a uh, as a victory. But look, um, it is really a uh, a great read, and this is you know there are so many fascinating characters, uh, and this is such an important part of American history. So I want to thank you for joining us, and thank you for writing the book. Well, thank you, Mike and Dan and Victoria. It's been a real pleasure being with you. Yeah.